0: Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure they're in fellowship and ready to focus on the Word and ready to learn what God the Holy Spirit has to challenge us with this evening. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come to you in prayer. We know that you have given us many promises in Scripture that you desire for us to bring our requests before you. You promise that if we bring these requests before you, you will hear us, and that if it is your will, you will answer our prayers, our petitions. And, Father, we need to learn to pray as the Scripture uh, gives us various models, and we need to follow those models and patterns in our prayer so that indeed we are praying uh, in light of your will. Father, we pray tonight as we study your word that you would enable us to understand what the scripture teaches, but not just end there, but how it impacts our own thinking and how we need to approach the issues of life within the framework of your promises and the principles of scripture. And we pray that you would help us not only to clearly understand what the Scripture says, but how to implement these things and to see what principles need to be implemented in what areas of each of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time in Romans 5, we started looking at the topic of of hope and endurance, which we're continuing this evening. Last time I began to do an analysis of hope. Uh, why do we need to hang in there? There's this connection between hope and endurance throughout uh, Scripture, but especially in these verses that <clears throat> we find here, reading in uh, Romans 5, uh, 2 through 5, just to get the context. Paul says it's through whom that is to Christ. Also, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Pay attention to that word rejoice. It is a key word in relation to hope and endurance. These words occur again and again in, uh, in combination. Not only that, and I've translated the, this next section, not only that, but we also rejoice, and I translated it rejoice. Most versions change the meaning here, but it's the same word that we have in verse 2. So you need to see how Paul's developing it by using the same word. Not only that, but we also rejoice in tribulations, plural term there, adversities, knowing or or because we know that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So I pointed out last time, we see this connection between endurance and hope, and it's important to understand that hope is really a process. Hope is not something that we get immediately at the instant of salvation. It is a process. It's something that is developed. We have, like many other aspects of the Christian life, we have some element of it when we're first saved. We have, In fact, when we understand the gospel, there is a gospel promise of eternal life, and we have the hope of eternal life. So there is a past element to this concept of hope, as we'll see, that talks about that which we learn at gospel hearing. But it is a forward-looking thing. So hope is a present reality based on a past promise that anticipates a future destiny. And it shapes in our thinking a level of confidence In God so that when we face the challenges and the vicissitudes of life, we're not knocked over by them, but we can stand firm and we can develop uh, through the word a mentality of of toughness, a mentality of strength so that uh, we are not knocked down by our adversities, but we stand firm. Last time I just uh, took the time to look at the... um, how Paul uses hope in <clears throat> in Romans, in the epistle to Romans. Because this is, uh, of course, the book that we're looking at, but it is in Romans that we really see um, most of the main ideas of the word hope that are found within, uh, within the New Testament. There um, are <clears throat> 13 times in nine verses Paul uses uh, the word hope in uh, in Romans, uh, 13 times in nine verses. And of total, out of a total of 36 times that Paul uses the word hope, this means that a little over a third of those uses are found in Romans. So Romans says a lot about, uh, about hope. So we just looked at that last time, and I concluded by saying, pointing out that hope is not a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness... Against which there is no law. Uh, That is something the Holy Spirit produces within us as a character, uh, as a character quality that reflects the character of Jesus Christ, and it's the result of walking by the Spirit. But hope is more related to understanding that promise of a future destiny that produces, that is tied in with, with our hanging in there, sticking with it as we grow. So that as we stick with the Christian life, we don't bail out, we don't quit, we don't go look for uh, some place that has a, a better, better programs or better music or um, better uh, uh, whatever it is that attracts people to certain kinds of, uh, certain kinds of churches. We understand that it's the Word of God that is really our strength in times of, of difficulty. It is the word of God that, that gives us that that the specifics related to that that hope. And so as I pointed out last time, what we see here in these in these verses are really the ABCs of the Christian life. Adversity builds Christian character. Now what I want to look at, to, uh, and then I, con- I concluded that hope's not a fruit of the spirit, but it's a mental attitude developed in the believer through the application of Scripture. So it's not apart from walking by the spirit, but it's more related to the content development in terms of, of our mindset than than character per se. Uh, I pointed out that hope is based on a past promise of a future reality and that hope provides a believer with conf- such confidence in that future reality that it strengthens and toughens the believer's mentality today to face the fight, to face and surmount unpleasant circumstances with a mentality of joy uh, even in the midst of difficulty. Now what I want to do tonight is expand that a little more, go beyond just what Paul says about hope in Romans to look at what Paul says other places and then knock the uh, boundaries off of that to look at what Paul says I mean, to to look at what other New Testament writers say. Uh, Technically, this is what is called a biblical theology. Now, for the average pew sitter, the average layman, biblical theology is a theology that's in in contrast to a non-biblical theology. But trained theologians don't use it that way. Biblical theology is used to develop theology within the books of the Bible. So you would have a theology of Romans. Everything that what, what does Romans teach about the essence and character of God? What does Romans teach about the Holy Spirit? What does Romans teach about salvation? What does Romans teach about the sinfulness of man? Uh, then you would look at a, another book like Ephesians and do the same kind of thing. That's developing a biblical theology. And then you would say you would summarize that. What does Paul teach about Uh, God, salvation, sin, eschatology, whatever. And then you do the same thing with Peter, and then you do the same thing with the writer of Hebrews, who nobody knows who wrote that, except a few overstressed students in seminary at finals week. And then you have... um, uh, johannine theology and so those are different segments based on different writers and then you combine that and that's how you build to a systematic theology see how educated you're getting so that's what we're basically doing here is what does paul say about hope in romans what does paul say about hope in his other epistles what is what do other writers in the new testament say about hope and then we're 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 categorizing that and developing that in, into one thing. So we've already looked at what Paul said about Romans, about hope in Romans, and now we're looking at at, uh, at other verses. Now, Paul uses the word hope 23 times in 22 verses. Not all of them apply to hope in terms of the spiritual life. Sometimes he uses it in, um, in a, a more prosaic manner. But uh, from the key verses, we'll develop our understanding of the doctrine of hope in Paul's writing. The first thing we notice is that hope is related to our future destiny. Hope has something to do with the fulfillment of the promise. We saw that with how it was used in Romans chapter 4 with Abraham. And Abraham had a promise that enabled him to have hope or confidence in God in fulfilling that So that his experience with his own infertility and Sarah's infertility uh, was, was, uh, uh, was not as real for him as the promise of God. And that is what part of how hope relates to faith. Faith is our belief that something is true. And as Jesus said, all we need is a mustard seed of faith. If you look at a mustard seed, it's one of the tiniest of all seeds. It's very small. You don't need a mountain-sized faith to be saved. You just need a little bit of faith to be saved. But that faith is what, in Christ, is what is the basis for our justification. But there's just a little bit there, and hope really focuses on the expansion of faith, and it's much more robust than faith. It's not unrelated to faith, but it's, it's like faith getting on steroids and focusing on the future. So hope is related to our future destiny, where that becomes more real to us than our present time. See, most of us are just like the teenagers many of you have raised. We don't like to admit this, but but we used to tell the teenagers that we raised that they needed to look beyond the end of their nose when they were going to do things, and Unfortunately, spiritually we often make those same mistakes as spiritual adolescence. We don't think in terms of the long-term plan of God. And when we when that long-term plan that is beyond this earth that goes into the millennial kingdom and beyond becomes more and more real to us, then it really begins to change and shape the decisions that we make and our responses to the circumstances that we face so hope is related to that future destiny our future roles and responsibilities in the messianic kingdom that is during the uh, dispensation of the millennium and so hope develops as we grasp the reality of what the bible calls our calling we'll look at that in a second Uh, the reality of our calling through the study of scripture and the passage we're going to look at is this one in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. In Ephesians 1, 18, we read, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And so here we have an example of how Paul sort of piles one genitive for Uh, clause on top of, uh, I mean, one generative phrase on top of another, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Just as a little aside here, uh, I've been doing some uh, uh, reading and some liberal influenced commentaries recently and came to... um, I haven't done that since I was probably in seminary. I don't care a whole lot about what liberals say, just that I'm hearing some of these things too often when I'm trying to talk to people about the Bible. And so sometimes we have to understand where, you know, what the unbelievers are going to say because that's what they've heard from the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and they've read, uh, books like, um, uh, various novels and different things related to, uh, Christianity that attack Christi- Christian belief. And one of the things that uh, that liberals came up with back in the 19th century was that Paul did not write Ephesians or Colossians because the writer of Ephesians and Colossians writes differently than the writer of Romans or Galatians or First and Second Thessalonians. Of course, the fact that Paul is addressing a different audience and writing 10 years later, Lord knows if you went back and read things I wrote, Uh, 20 years ago before I had the benefit of an editress who crucified me daily um, because of the way I wrote things, you would not necessarily say it was the same person that wrote something I wrote today and something I wrote 20 or 25 years ago. And everybody, everybody grows and matures in, in their writing. And so there's different style and different vocabulary, but that's related to topic and other things. But that just, again, shows the superficiality of the skeptical mind. And that's what they look to, and they say, see, this is hard and fast evidence that the Apostle Paul could not have written uh, Ephesians. And the reality is that uh, everybody has, uh, has these kinds of stylistic variants. If you look at different writers who write on different topics, uh, they, that will change style and it will change vocabulary. So here we have one of those interesting phrases but we ha- with the uh, piling on of genitives, but we have to understand it a little bit. And so to do that, we always have to go to context. What is going on around this verse? Why is Paul saying this? And we go back just a couple of verses to verse uh, 15, because at that point, Paul uh, shifts his topic a little bit. This is one of those uh, very famous uh, sections uh, of Paul's writings, and that is from verse 3 down through verse 14 in the uh, original Greek is one long sentence. And the apostle Paul would get excited about something, and he would just pile clause upon clause and phrase upon phrase. and And what's always fun is when you're... Uh, Teaching first year Greek and you get, or second year Greek, and you're getting into diagramming is to throw this one out and to try to have your students diagram this in the Greek. Um, It's bad enough in the English. Uh, But most English Bibles will break it up into three, four, five, six, or seven, as many as seven sentences. The problem with that in an English translation is a sentence is your basic unit of thought. And so if this is one sentence in the original, then it's one thought with a lot of secondary. And tertiary ideas. If you break it into seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, or twelve sentences, then what you've done is you've created seven independent uh, statements, seven independent ideas instead of just one idea with secondary and supporting uh aspects to it. And as soon as he finishes that long sentence in verse 14, he starts another long sentence in verse 15. And here he shifts, he draws a conclusion. Coming out of uh, the long sentence of three through fourteen, talking about and here he goes. He talks about prayer. He says, "Therefore," which draws the conclusion. I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, see their trust in Christ and their application of doctrine in their life, their love for all the saints. He says almost the same thing in the Colossian, to the Colossian believers, which we've studied on Sunday morning. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So it tells us something about his prayer life that he is continuously praying for the various congregations and various believers that he knew. But what does he pray for? Now, this is the kind of thing that you and I need to pay attention to. How do you pray? What do you pray for? What kind of uh uh, things do you have in your prayer list? Most of us have people who are ill, people who are struggling with something, people who are facing some uh, challenge or adversity in life. But I would suggest that most of us need to pay attention to how Paul prays for people. He says, first of all, uh, he says in verse 17, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, we ought to pray that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, but we ought to know what that means before we pray for it. Now, this is important. Paul prays for this for the Ephesian believers. He prays for this same kind of thing in other other epistles. Uh, He prays that recognizes that the ultimate authority, the member of the Trinity who ultimately distributes things and who's ultimately in charge is God the Father. And he prays to God the Father. And all prayer should be addressed to God the Father. Every now and then somebody says, well, what happens if we pray to the Holy Spirit or we pray to... Uh, pray to Jesus well we have a promise over in Romans 8 that if we don't know how to pray that the Holy Spirit acts as a sort of a divine buffer so that if we're we're not right or we don't know somebody's name or whatever the Holy Spirit knows how we should pray and he sort of uh, gets you know cleans things up for us in the process that doesn't mean you should uh, that's not an excuse for sloppy praying but that's a reality that even when we're praying like we ought, we, Scripture still says we don't always know how we ought to pray. So the Holy Spirit is involved as an intercessor. Now, we don't pray to an intercessor. We're praying to the one the intercessor goes to. That's why we don't pray to Jesus. We pray uh, to the Father. Jesus intercedes for us with the Father. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with the Father. Mary doesn't intercede, the saints don't intercede, that's what Roman Catholicism teaches, that's what Greek Orthodoxy teaches, but we do not believe that the saints or that Mary have anything to do with our prayers. It is between us and the Godhead, but the different members of the Godhead have different roles uh, with regard to prayer. So it doesn't mean that if you pray to the Son, or you pray to the spirit that that god's going to slap your hand and say i 'm not going to answer that prayer. It does mean though that we should understand that that nowhere in scripture is are there prayers that are addressed to the Son or addressed to the holy spirit they're specifically different roles, and we should learn that and pray um, correctly. We also need to understand that now and then there are hymn writers who take a little license with that and every now and then they are addressing things to the sun and uh, we just give them a little poetic license unless they push it a little too far but that is uh that's that's uh needs to be looked at on a case by case basis but generally that's uh uh, that only by looking at it on a case-by-case basis can we determine if it's if it's really an acceptable situation or not. A lot of times just the generic word Lord can refer to the Father or to the Son, so we'll just give the benefit of the doubt that it's referring to the Father. But Paul always addresses his prayers to the Father, and so he is praying that God the Father, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, would be the one who would grant something to the believer. And this is praying in the will of God because we know that it's the will of God for us to know the word of God and know the will of God so that we can mature and glorify God. So this is an example also of praying within the will of God. And so he prays that that God the Father might give to you the spirit of wisdom. Now, this is the first time we hit one of these genitives, a spirit of wisdom, and this has been translated a couple of different ways. If you, uh, the Greek is simply pneumosophias, which means it doesn't have an article with it, so it's emphasizing the quality, the essence uh, of these nouns, as opposed to uh, making any kind of specific distinctions. Uh, some uh, translations, for example, the NIV and the English Bible, Uh, interpret the word pneuma here to refer to the Holy Spirit, which is just wrong. Um, And so they translated the spirit of wisdom in the sense that it is the spirit of God who produces wisdom. And of course, that's true on passages such as Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which talks about the fact that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, that is the Messiah, and uh, identifies the spirit of the Lord as the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So we understand the principle that God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who produces wisdom, but that does not mean that this is what how this phrase should be translated. It could be talking about just a spirit of wisdom, lowercase s, in which case some may take this as the human spirit. The word spirit or pneuma is a word that has about eleven or twelve different meanings in Scripture, and so we always have to be careful how we understand it. It could refer to an evil spirit or a demon. It can refer to the wind or to a br- to breath. Uh, it could refer to the immaterial part of man as a synonym for the word soul. And in other places, it refers to something that is the, part of the immaterial nature of man that is completely distinct from the soul. And so we have to look at each usage in and of itself. If you get too strict with the spirit and say, ah, if it's referring to man, it's the human spirit, that which he gets at regeneration, then what do you do when Genesis talks about the spirit of Pharaoh? Pharaoh wasn't saved. He didn't have a human spirit. Uh Uh-oh, wait a minute, I've got to redo my theology. No, it's just talking, that's an example in the Old Testament of how the word uh, ruach, the Hebrew word, uh, simply is used as a synonym for the immaterial part of man or the thinking of man. So sometimes the word spirit has to do with attitude, which is more likely here. Uh, it could be used in this kind of a genitive construction, the word pneuma could be used as an adjective, in which case it would mean spiritual wisdom, and that is, uh, that's certainly possible, uh, and and viable. But uh, I think the last option, that is spirit as understood is an attitude or a mentality, a mental attitude of wisdom, is how it's understood in a number of translations like the King James Version, the New King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, and Lagos has an electronic version called the Lexham English Bible. And so I think that that's what this is talking about, that God might give to the individual believer an attitude or a mentality of wisdom. Now, wisdom in biblical thought is something very different from wisdom in Greek thought. Even though this is a Greek word, the background for Paul is not Athens, it's Jerusalem. And the idea of wisdom in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is the idea of producing something skillful a uh, aholiab and uh, bezalel and aholiab were two of the craftsmen that were put over all the craftsmen who built the tabernacle and they were given skill the new ta- uh, the king james translates it that way skill in their craftsmanship in the in in building the articles for the tabernacle and their as goldsmiths and as uh seamstresses and as weavers and as all those aspects that were designed uh, for the tabernacle, which made it one of the most beautiful pieces of art, uh, that ever existed on the planet, the, the Spirit of God gave them Hochma, which means, which is the word translated wisdom, but it has that idea of skill. And for, for, for the, uh, Hebrews, for the Jews, skill was not intellectual acumen. It's not academic accomplishment, which was more of the Greek idea, was somebody who could think well, somebody who had a good grasp of intellectual issues and was adept in logic. That's not the Hebrew idea. The Hebrew mind was much more practical. And so for them, wisdom was the ability to take abstract truth and to make something of it that had beauty and value. And so, when we look at the difference between wisdom and knowledge in in the Bible, knowledge is our understanding of what the Bible teaches and understanding that. And then, wisdom is the ability to take the knowledge and apply it to the circumstances and situations of our life so that what we're producing in our life is something that has spiritual beauty, that has real value as testimony before men and before the angels and so it it um, this is the idea there that God is the one to give that that mentality of wisdom so it's he 's talking to believers at Ephesus, so it clearly is something that goes beyond uh, anything that happens at salvation so it 's clearly talking about the sp- part of the spiritual growth related to uh, uh the believer as he in his spiritual life and then the second term revelation in the knowledge of him revelation has the concept of of disclosure or unveiling and it is the idea that that as we study the word god is going to uh disclose himself more and more to us in his word so that we come to Uh, know him more in a fuller sense. And the Greek word that translates knowledge here is the word epinosis, which has to do with a fuller, more experiential knowledge. It's not just that I can rattle off the ten attributes of God and I can give you ten points on the doctrine of the Trinity, but that that knowledge then leads me to a closer relationship with God, and as that relationship develops, it in turn leads to a greater understanding of those those attributes and of who who God is and and what he has uh, what he has done. So Paul is praying that God would be the one to give us this uh, men, men, mental attitude of wisdom or skill skillful application and continue to disclose Himself and a fuller knowledge of him. This isn't apart from his word, but this is through his His word. We just can't exhaust the knowledge of God that comes through his word. I don't know why people try to find it somewhere else. It's all there. We, we haven't exhausted the 66 books of the Bible yet, so why do we want to go uh, somewhere else to find knowledge of God? And all of that's important to understand because of our verse that I'm looking at, which is uh, related to hope in verse 18, because this is the next part of this sentence. And we have to understand the context of the that, that Paul is talking about what he prays for in order to understand what happens in verse, verse 18. Verse 18 starts off with, uh, "...that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling..." What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, when this verse begins, it begins uh, in most translations. It's an unfortunate place to put that verse break because we think of this as a separate sentence. In fact, there are some translations who break this into a separate sentence in the English uh, the versions that are guilty of that are the New American Standard, the New International Version, and the New English Bible, and the King James New uh, Electronic Text, the NET Bible, the New English Bible, the Revised Standard Bible, and the Lexham English Bible and Lagos all recognize this is a continued thought from the previous verse. And in fact, the beginning here, the phrase, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, is a parenthetical statement. And it can only be taken that way because this word that is translated, um, enlightened, is pefetismenos, which is a, a participial form, a perfect participle, which means it's talking about completed action. So it's not talking about the process of enlightenment, which is how it might appear in your English Bible. It's, it's talking about an already completed enlightenment. The only thing that's already completed in enlightenment in reference to a Christian is what happens at regeneration. So what Paul is actually saying here is that that, uh, he prays to the Father that he will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him, because the eyes of your understanding have already been opened. They've already been enlightened. That happened at at regeneration. And then he comes back to his main line uh, of, of thought that you may know what is the hope of his calling. So if we drop out that initial phrase and just talk about revelation, the knowledge of him, that you may know, it takes us to the next level, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. But before we get there, I want to point out a couple more things about this phrase related to enlightenment. See, the context here tells us that it, even though there are some translations that try to make this uh, or tie this into a present, tense sort of thing, uh, rather than looking at it as a completed action, uh, the, the context both in Ephesians in this chapter and in the overall epistle talks about the fact that we're already children of light. Being a child of light is something that occurs to us positionally at the instant of salvation, and light is the result of responding to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.6 uses light to refer to the knowledge of the gospel. For it is, the, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So light here is related to knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of who man is, who God is, and the revelation to man, the disclosure to us of our need for salvation. And that is related to the glory of God. We're going to see the, the, something related to the glory of God again and again as we go through this concept related to light. And this, of course, takes us back to what is often referred to as the Shekinah glory in the in the Old Testament that that visible presence of God in the tabernacle that was the pillar of fire by day uh, or a pillar of fire at night and the cloud. Uh, by day that uh, was in the holy of holies and when moses would go in and god would speak to him when moses came out his face sh- just shone and so he had to wear a veil over it because as it dimmed the people would think oh god's leaving him or something people are so silly and um uh, but it's that light related to his glory. Now, some people get the idea that Shekinah has something to do with light. Shekinah is just a Hebrew word. It's not used in the Old Testament, but it's the word for dwelling, a, a dwelling place. And it, it pops up in places in, as a cognate in Greek, even in, even in Russian, uh, pops up as, uh, in both languages as skene. The R- Russian borrowed it from, from, the, um, uh, from, from the Greek, and it means a dwelling place, the dwelling presence of God. And so, light though is related to that dwelling place, uh, dwelling presence of God. Another place in which uh, this is used is in Second Corinthians six fourteen, and here it helps us understand that believers are positionally and by nature now as regenerated, they are light because they've responded to the light of the gospel. They are we are children of light. Light is our new nature. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is the biblical prohibition of missionary dating. There are a lot of people who think that, uh, well, I just can't find anybody out there that is a, a, a Christian or spiritually mature, so I'm just going to date whoever I can find and try to convince them uh, to become a believer and then hope that they'll become mature. That, that whole concept is spil, spelled M-I-S-E-R-Y. That's misery for those of you who haven't uh, made it past the fifth grade yet. Uh, and I've seen it again and again and again because it always invokes compromise of, of one's belief system in that process. And so it's very hard today. I can't tell you how many people I've known over the past 10, especially the past 10 or 12 years. Uh, I think it's reached almost crisis proportions today. Single women, single men who just can't seem to ever find or discover or locate a a person of the opposite sex who's interested in the Scripture at the same level that they are. And so you have two options. One is to learn how to be alone, and the other is to compromise. And it's sad to watch how many compromise. And I know of a lot of just tremendous, tremendous believers, more women than men, sadly, but tremendous believers who just can't find somebody who they can they can share with on on that spiritual s- spiritual level. So they, so they settle. And you just don't ever settle. It's always bad. You just never settle for second best or third best or, or whatever. And Paul states it clearly do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness. See, we are light, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, for you were once darkness, positionally as an unbeliever, but now you are light in the Lord. Now that phrase right there is talking about our position, our identity in Christ. But the next phrase moves from the positional realm, our identity in Christ, to our day-to-day Christian growth and Christian life. We are children of light. Now we're to walk as children of light. I don't know what your family name is, what your last name is, but let you say you're all Smiths and your your daddy would say you're a Smith. A Smith doesn't live like that. You're to live your life like a Smith and Smiths don't do that. That's what Paul's saying here. You are a, you are a child of God. Your last name is Light. And you're to live according to the standards of the family of light. And that means you're to walk as children of light. It's not, uh, not an option. So it's our position. Because of that, Paul challenges the Philippians. He says that you may become blameless and harmless. That's Christian growth. That is the direction of our spiritual maturity. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Every believer is to be a light in the world. Uh, We're not supposed to hide our lights. You know, the little song, this little light of mine. Well, this little light is you. Uh, Pardon the grammatical shift there. 1 Thessalonians 5.5, Paul says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. That is our position. As the instant that we're saved, there is an enlightenment there that comes because we are now a new creature in Christ. We see this again in the last passage I'll look at on this is hebrews 6 4 for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened see that's a salvation term that's a regeneration concept and we know that because the next um, phrase having tasted the heavenly gift is not taste in the sense that you go down to uh uh, heb on a saturday morning and every time you go around to the next aisle there's somebody there with another little sample and you can taste a little bit of this and a little bit of that and by the time you get through, you don't want to buy any groceries because you're full. <laughs> I remember one year when, uh, when when we first went up to to uh, Connecticut, we hadn't been there more than a month, and we decided to go a little, go exploring. And so we went over to Newport in Rhode Island, and they were having a <clears throat> a festival. I don't even remember what the festival was, but they had a what chowder. Chowder. Well, it was a chowder. Well, they had a chowder thing there. The whole thing. What the chowder festival was? Oh, was okay. See, I get corrected. Everybody gets corrected. Um, So we went to this chowder tasting thing, and there must have been 25 or 30 restaurants there that were represented, and each one gave you a little paper cup holding a little bit less than an ounce of clam chowder. Now, when you go through 25 or 30 restaurants, that's 25 or 30 ounces of clam chowder. You're full you're just getting a little taste. But that's not what this word means. It's not just getting a little taste or a little sample. It is to fully embrace something. That's that idea to, to eat something, to take it into your person and assimilate it into your being. So it, this isn't a term for just a sampling salvation. This is a term for uh, that, that relates to being saved, being uh, fully enlightened, uh, tasted the heavenly gift and partakers of the Holy Spirit. So once again, we see that this concept of enlightenment is related primarily to our position, first of all, in Christ. It comes at regeneration. So Paul is praying that since we have already been enlightened, that's what happened when we're and we become a new creature in Christ, and we have new capabilities to understand divine truth, He says, having already had the eyes of your understanding opened, or you having already been enlightened, he says, I'm praying that God the Father would give to you the spirit or the mentality of wisdom and increase revelation in knowledge of him for a purpose. See, it's not knowledge isn't the end game. Uh, Knowledge is just a means to an end. All of the notes that you take in Bible class are not the end game. That's to help you go to the next level and the next level and the next level. The eyes of your understanding having already been enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. That's what all of this is about, understanding that the hope of our calling, what, which is further described as the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, what exactly does this term calling mean? It's a term that's been picked up in Calvinistic theology to relate to what is called effectual calling. Effectual calling means that God the Holy Spirit in Calvinistic theology, God the Holy Spirit only effectually calls those who are elect. Everybody else gets passed over. The Holy Spirit ignores them. Uh, We don't believe that. We believe that Those who are chosen by God are those that who respond to the gospel. And it is that invitation of the gospel that is a synonym for the calling. There is in theology two calls, one the external call, and this is the external gospel invitation which any person hears. And then there is the internal call, which is the work of God the Holy Spirit, which always goes along with the external call, in making the gospel clear and understandable, if, if, if some, in Calvinism they they often teach that that because man is so dead spiritually and he is dead spiritually that he can't hear the invitation. Well, if he doesn't need to hear the invitation, then why does Satan blind the minds of the unbeliever, which is what Paul says in Second Corinthians four four. If if people are so spiritually dead they can't understand or perceive the meaning of the gospel to respond to it, then why in the world does Satan need to blind them? He can just leave them alone because they're not elect. But Satan blinds them because they can understand and they can respond if they so choose and he has to uh, deceive them and distract them from the hope of our calling. Turn with me to Matthew 22. This is best illustration of calling in the Scripture. Matthew chapter 22. This is the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus made a lot of points by telling stories. So people who say, well, telling stories and reading, reading stories are not, uh, he's not really teaching doctrine. Well, Jesus taught a lot of doctrine through telling stories. So stories, just because it's a story doesn't mean it's not teaching something. Jesus is talking to the uh, disciples and to the multitudes, and he says, verse 2, The king of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. Notice the terms, to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. So there is a the call here is synonymous to the invitation. Now they are being invited, they've been invited to the wedding, now they're being told to come, and they're not willing to come. So they obviously resist the call, the invitation. Verse four says again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my ox and fatted cattle are killed, and all the things are ready. Come to the wedding but they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his own business. So the call goes to everyone. call refers to simply that invitation to uh, believe the gospel. Verse 6, he says, And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city, Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Why were they not worthy? Not because of something inherent in them, but because they made a decision to reject the gospel, or the invitation in this case. Then he said to, um, then in verse 9, we read, therefore go into the highway, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So now go call everybody. That's the idea, call and invitation are parallel, Synonymous. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you get come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into the outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called. Now you've all heard this verse. Many are called and few are chosen. See, those who are chosen, that's that word, eklektos for elect, those who are chosen are the ones who responded to the invitation. All were called. All were invited. But the only ones who are chosen are the ones who responded to the invitation and had the right wedding garments. And the wedding garment is a picture of the imputation of righteousness. And so one came who did not accept the... wanted to come on his own terms. And the picture here is that God says, you're not getting in on your own terms, you've got to get in on my terms, which means you wear the wedding garments I provide. And the illustration here is uh, that this is the righteousness of Christ. So calling relates to invitation. And the way that the New Testament writers use the term the called is simply as a, as a synonym for those who responded to the invitation. So when we look at, uh, Ephesians 1.18, the hope of, the, uh, of, of his calling, he is, it's his calling, he calls us, and the hope is part of the calling, which is that expectation of eternal life. And so we come to understand all that is involved in that eternal life and our future destiny, and that comes under the next category, which are, which is the riches, of the glory of his inheritance. Now, the, that genitive phrase of the glory should be understood as, a, as an attributive or adjectival genitive modifying inheritance. So it should be translated, uh, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We have a glorious inheritance, and we have to come to understand the wealth of it. We have to understand the riches that are ours in that eternal destiny in terms of ruling and reigning with Christ, in terms of the millennial kingdom, our destiny there, but beyond that, on into heaven. It's not sitting on a cloud plucking on a harp. There's going to be a tremendous amount to do. There's going to be all kinds of things that we're going to advance in Uh, The knowledge of God is infinite and eternal, and we will never, ever approximate it. And so we have this glorious future in front of us, and we need to come to understand, because the more we come to understand it, the more that motivates us to do well now, to develop that tough mental attitude, to face the difficulties, the challenges, and the heartaches of life that come our way, because we never know how they're going to uh, how they're going to hit us. And Paul says the same kind of thing in Colossians one five because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. So the past is the gospel, the promise, the future is the destiny, and our hope is our confidence today in terms of of the future. This is described by Paul also in verse 23 as the hope of the gospel which you have heard. It's that expectation of a future reality. In 1 Thessalonians 1, three, Paul uses it again in relationship to endurance. He says, he praises them because he says, I remember without ceasing your work of faith, that is the production of your faith and your spiritual growth, the labor produced from your love, and then the patience of hope, that is the endurance that... Uh, your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ produced. See, there's a hope that comes when we understand the gospel. And then there's a hope that develops and matures as we go through the process of uh, facing trials and enduring. And so that hope that we have at the beginning is transformed to a mature, robust hope as we grow and mature by our understanding of the gospel as the future becomes more real to us. Titus talks about this hope as being the eternal life uh, of which God who cannot lie promised before time began. And then in Titus 3.7, he says that because we have been justified by his grace, we should become future tense. And there uh, you have an aorist participle to have been justified, which precedes the action of the uh, verb, Uh, To become, which literally means, it's genomai, and it means to become something we weren't before, uh, becoming heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it connects, again, hope and inheritance and our eternal life, which, of course, is realized as we look for the blessed hope, which is the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this gives us a perspective on how Paul uses hope in other passages. And next time we'll come back, wrap up a few other passages uh, outside of uh, Paul and then connect it back together with the topic of hope and endurance. Father, we thank you that we can look at these passages this evening and uh, come to understand the importance of hope, that hope is not just some wishful optimism, uh, some just uh, positive mental attitude that's built on a cloud and and uh, that that generates from a dream, but it is based on the sure and certain promise of your word, just as it was for Abraham, it was built on the promise that you made to him. It's built on the promise of the gospel, the eternal life that we have in Christ. Father, may we come to understand how that hope, what that hope consists and that it may be more real uh, in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.